0: The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of October 29th, 2018. On this week's show, ESPN's Sam Miller will join us to discuss the Boston Red Sox's fourth World Series title in 15 years the Los Angeles Dodgers' second World Series loss in two years, and the various moves and moments that preceded that outcome. ESPN's Dave McMiniman will also be here to talk about the opening weeks of LeBron James's first season in Los Angeles, and the last few weeks of Cavaliers coach Teron Liu's final season in Cleveland. And finally, Kevin Clark of The Ringer will join us to explore why NFL coaches are, after low so many years, Getting Aggressive on Fourth Down. Joining me in our Washington, D.C. studio is Stefan Fatsis, author of the book's Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic, known aggressor, Stefan Fatsis. Hello, Stefan. Hey, Josh. <laughs> a little off-putting. For that a known, was not aggressive. For, for a known aggressor. All right, Stefan. I'm going to start with a question for you. Packers-Rams was 10-2 and 10-8 at uh, various points. Niners-Cardinals was 2-0, 3-2, and 5-3, I want you to rank those five scores mm-hmm. from best to worst. Mm-hmm. Best to
1: worst. I like 10-2 because it's a weird disparity. And you've got field goal, touchdown, extra point safety. A lot of variety. A lot of variety there. I like that aspect. 5-3 um, is you know crazy weird. 3-2 um, is would be next. On my line, I like 5-3. Well, five is by far the weirdest number. It's the weirdest number. That's why it's so good. Three, two is nice because it's one of each field goal safety. Um, and then what was the last one? You, two, 10, zero eight. is fourth and ten, eight is sixth. Two, zero doesn't do it for me because there were so many scores of two, zero in the early years of the NFL. And I'm going to check that right now. There have been five games in NFL so history many. that finished two, zero. So many. Five. Right. Five to three. No bigger number than five. Five to three. That was one of my choices, right? Yeah. yeah. Five-three, <laughs> October seventeenth, nineteen twenty-five. The Frankfurt Yellow Jackets beat the New York Giants. Ten-two has also happened, nineteen twenty six, the Duluth Eskimos over the Canton Bulldogs, which is another reason that 10-2 is great, because it was the Duluth Eskimos. And the Canton Bulldogs.
0: It wouldn't surprise me if some of these teams that come up when you look at Scorigamis actually didn't exist except for that one game? Scorigami For that game. one game. That's they, just the emerged, game they, they just emerged out of the fog to have a 10-2 game and then disappeared, yeah. never to be seen again. We're still waiting for 5-2 to, to happen as a final score in the NFL. 5-2, uh, not an uncommon baseball score. Game 5 of the World Series was 5-1, which would be... I think by far the best football score of any that we've ever seen. Gotta get the one point safety in there. But perhaps But it's not possible. It has to be at least six to one. It does? Yes. Oh right, cause okay. Five to one, as I as I was saying, would be an amazing football score, because it's not even possible. Uh let's talk about the World Series, shall we?
2: Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The roast of Tom Brady.
1: Unlike in other years, the 2018 Major League Baseball playoffs ended without a surprise. A favored team did not flop. No one's shit did not work. After winning 108 games in the regular season, the Boston Red Sox won 11 more while losing just three, beating arguably the second and third best teams in baseball, the Houston Astros and New York Yankees, and then arguably the fourth best team, the Los Angeles Dodgers, along the way. Boston was strongest, so grudging congratulations to that downtrodden sports city. And welcome to Sam Miller of ESPN. Hey, Sam.
3: Hey, Stefan. Boston fans, unfortunately, they take this not as a compliment, but an insult, what I'm going to say next. But if you look at the sort of underlying performances throughout the season, if you were really just trying to drill down on the uh, intrinsic baseball skill level of each team demonstrated throughout the season, you might actually say that the Red Sox beat the first and second and fourth best teams, and that the Red Sox were kind of on a base run level, like the third best team, uh, but they were the most successful team. They were the best team at winning. Mm -hmm. And uh, so then it gets to this question of how we judge teams. And ultimately, I think it's fair to say what you said and probably less fair to say what I said.
1: Well, let's stipulate also that the Red Sox had the biggest payroll in baseball, um, which is not especially relevant to winning the World Series year to year. I was just reading uh, Jeff Sullivan's piece on fan graphs (laughs) recapping the uh, World Series after the Red Sox closed out the Dodgers on Sunday night in five games. Jeff wrote that the playoff Red Sox played almost flawless baseball, yet they were largely carried by their supporting cast. Both of those things – are true. Um, I mean, th- th- this was really a very impressive dominant run through the postseason, the likes of which, I don't know, where do you have to go back to see a team dominate like this in the postseason? The Cincinnati Reds in the 70s? The Oakland A's in the 70s? I don't know.
3: The slate of three teams that they faced is not, it's not even close. It's the hardest run to a World Series that a team has ever faced. I mean, the, the Astros alone, uh, if you look at, like, their sort of full resume uh, they're one of the, I don't know, maybe dozen best teams since uh, since 1950. Uh, and uh, they they walloped them. And so uh, the Yankees weren't that far behind, and the Dodgers um, had the true talent of probably a 100 plus win team, too. I mean, it, it's, it's great. I'm really glad because the Red Sox were already with a 108 win season, were kind of in that conversation as one of the better regular season teams of all time. And but they weren't going to be remembered as one of the great seasons, great regular season teams of all time, in the same way that like the 100 what 14 win Yankees were or the Big Red Machine was. That it, it just wasn't quite like historically going to get there uh, unless they had an incredible postseason. And the opportunity was there for them to have an incredible postseason.
0: It's interesting, Stefan, that in, for example, soccer there is a way that we deal with this and think about it. And like the league cup, the regular season is actually an important and significant thing to go along with, you know, whether it's the champions league trophy or, or whatever, that's seen as like this bonus extra, not necessarily in relation to the regular season thing. And in baseball, that's actually makes more sense even than in soccer and any other sport. But in American sports, the only thing that I can think of is the like hockey equivalent where you get a trophy for having the highest regular season point total and that's like actually ridiculed like if you don't win in the playoffs like the capitals for years were like oh congratulations you won that trophy you big fat losers and so if we gave the like regular season champ in baseball a a trophy i think it it would just be seen as like super dumb just because of like the history of how american sports have developed I think that is correct. I think that we've talked about, you know, and we've talked about having
1: the idea of a, of a, of a baseball cup, which would be a lot of fun. And Sam, you proposed a different kind of playoffs that might reward, um, get everyone involved and, and maybe reward the best. Teams everyone, gets a, everyone gets a trophy. Everyone gets a trophy, but, but rewards the, uh, the, the best teams for their, for their season performance in a more substantial way. Uh, but back to this world series, it, it was in spite of the fact that it was five games and, and, And as you said, Sam, that that the Red Sox really dominated as they dominated the other two rounds of of the playoffs. It was wildly entertaining. Um, A lot of interesting stuff. A lot of interesting things happened. From you know Yasiel Puig hitting a home run, bat flipping, flexing, and Eduardo Rodriguez slamming his glove to the mound. And what really to me is like the perfect GIF and the perfect sort of emotional moment in baseball, the kind of moment that we want to see more of to, of course, the 18 inning game three, which validated, Sam, your piece from last January asking what would happen if there were a 50 inning game in baseball. And this was pretty close to a
0: 15 inning game, 32 innings short. I feel like it like kind of 36 percent validated Sam's piece. Yeah. Quickly, quick, quick on the math, Josh. Very good.
3: (laughs) This is pretty easy math.
1: (laughs) Yeah,
0: I.
3: Yeah, the, the, well, there. You know, the there was a point in that game where, uh, even I, even I, a person who lives for a fifty inning game and feels no real need to see the outcome of the game and, and is happy to live in it forever, even I started to feel like we were getting to the point where the game was was getting dark that there was it felt like somebody was going to get hurt and never recover. I mean, particularly because we we didn't know at the time how seriously Eduardo Nunez and and Xander Bogarts might have been physically compromised. Bogarts uh, looked like he had strained something in his lower body when he was swinging in one at bat. And then you just imagine that he was going to have to play shortstop for 11 mornings and he might never recover. And Nathan Ivaldi, same thing with his. So anyway, yeah, that was a, that was a good game.
1: (laughs) (laughs) They only got 18 hits in 18 innings combined. It was a terrible game. Um, but it was a fascinating game. When I woke up, I feel at like Sam didn't, get the full,
0: Sam didn't get the full experience because he doesn't live on the East Coast. Yeah, like to really experience the 18 inning game, you need to be up until after 3 a.m. Right. I mean,
1: it. we can tell our personal stories here. Josh, did you even watch? I mean, how far Hell did you no. Go? Yeah, I watched. No, you didn't. I fell asleep about – I took a little power nap between the 7th and ninth, and woke up and it was still tied. And then I was up until the 12th and I fell asleep again. And then I woke up in the 15th and I was like, what the <laughs> fuck is going on? I had absolutely – I was disoriented. I'm worried about –
0: I think we need to get you
1: into a sleep study. Why do you keep, <laughs> do you keep waking up? <laughs> I was very disoriented and I turned it off and set my DVR after the 17th inning and literally kind of tossed and turned because I was – and I was getting
0: excited
1: about what i would get to watch in the morning yeah i was sort of planning funny tweets and i was gonna you
0: know I also get excited that you're gonna be able to fast forward
1: through it and uh and yeah saw one batter and went to the gym people
3: <laughs> seemed people seemed really mad i was i was not prepared for how much anger there was going to be that this game existed that it existed or that it ended Ah, uh, know that it existed. P- yeah, people were it seemed like people were really upset that that baseball could that baseball not like major league baseball, but baseball as a sport uh, could allow a a game that that goes seven and a half hours and makes everybody look so unhappy on it.
0: Well, I feel like the game needed to go a little bit longer so children could see the end of a World Series game mm-hmm. as, uh, yeah. as 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 is always the dream. Like mm-hmm. if it went until seven a.m., then uh, you know Tommy and and Timmy could. Could see the the final batters before Only on they went the east to school. Coast. Only on the east coast. Um, the two things I think we should talk about um, before we wrap up are um, Rich Hill getting taken out of the game by D- Dave Roberts and Game Four leading our dumb president to, to tweet, and then also David Price getting his vindication in Game Five. Um, let's start with Hill. There was like some really fascinating slash hilarious reporting during Game Five where. Fox had both Tom Verducci and Ken Rosenthal like going behind the scenes on what happened. And so Roberts was criticized for taking Hill out in the seventh inning. Hill had only given up one hit. And were the Dodgers up four to nothing at that point? Yeah. I believe they were. Um, and so the the reporting that we, that we got was that what had happened is Roberts came out to the mound. They had previously had a conversation and Hill was like, Watch Watch out for me. Look out for me, Skip. Um, and, and Roberts comes out to the mound, and as soon as he gets there, he'll just hands him the ball and walks away. And Roberts said, I just wanted to talk to the guy. And so this leads me – you know, Sam, it's really important that men especially – Communicate with each other. That we talk to each other. I think that this we, is what
1: this reflects. That we tell of, yeah. each
0: other how we feel. feel. Rich Hill kind of did that a little bit between innings. But then when you know Roberts came out to the mound, he didn't say you know let's have a conversation, let's look each other in the eye, let's talk about our emotions and how we feel. He just handed him the ball because because he was like you know whenever every time he'd come out before he always took me out of the game. And so but I just the tea assumed. leaves
1: though, Josh, the, the the you weren't sort of reading the 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 physical manifestations of Robert's intent cuz he kind of jogged to the mound i don't know if it was Kenny or Tom reported he jogged to the mound which should have been a tell that he wasn't planning to take him out but just talk to him but Hill was had his back faced, uh-huh. had his back facing the mound. At that point, didn't see that Roberts was jogging and not walking. So it really was just a disaster, and they should have, you know, someone should have brought like a, a self help book out to the mound for yeah, the Sam, them. Yeah, can, Sam,
0: can we get some next gen stats on Roberts's speed and getting to the mound and what that um, means about his intent on taking the pitcher out?
3: Yeah, it was a healthy pace.
0: Um, so, what did you think about? the decision about how it was covered. And like the fan reaction, I believe that Roberts was booed before a game five in Dodger stadium.
3: Uh, yeah. Although you always, I mean, there's 54,000 people in there and it only takes a couple of boos to, to be heard. Fair. I, I, my, my feeling, I mean, there's been a lot of talk over the last, um, I don't know, decade or so, especially about the importance of communication in, in the modern, um, baseball club, because there's there's sort of so many different moving pieces involved in you know getting the analytics going and implementing them and uh, considering the player's comfort level and trying to use them in different roles. And so there's a lot of communication involved, right? I mean, we all talk about how the manager's most important role these days is communication between the front office and the players and all that. And there is a lot of communication, and that is really important. And I feel like my sense is that there's a lot of communication that takes place between games. Uh, But that there's still not a lot of communication that happens during games, that it's a weird place to kind of have these sort of slightly off script conversations. And
0: uh, well, there's also this superstition or just a tradition of starting pitchers just not being talked to by anyone during games, right?
3: Absolutely. Yeah. And so uh, it doesn't surprise me at all that when Rich Hill sort of tried to have a slightly unconventional conversation with his manager that his manager didn't quite pick up all the nuance of it. And then when Dave Roberts went out to have an unconventional conversation on the mound with his pitcher, his pitcher wasn't prepared for it. It was, uh, you know, that you can understand how the, the the social situation was uh, just not quite uh, familiar to either one.
1: Two things really stood out to me. One is, to stick with the touchy-feely stuff, is that Hill, according to either Verducci or Rosenthal, was sort of embarrassed didn't want to tell Roberts that I wasn't ready to come out, which sort of contravenes logic in these situations. Well, there's like a
0: manliness, toughness aspect where you don't want to say that you're tired.
1: But he didn't do that. You know, instead of being forthright and saying, no, I'm not ready to come out, let's talk oh, about that. it. that, yeah, yeah. Um, that's what struck me as weird. But the second part is what you just said, Sam, which is that was it too early to take Rich Hill out? Probably not, right? I mean, how many... How many games has Rich Hill pitched past 100 pitches? He's not a 100-pitch pitcher anymore, as I think Keith Law pointed out on Twitter. Um, Your friend Ben Lindbergh wrote a piece for The Ringer before Game 4 that talked about how we should never at this point really second-guess too much because teams have so much more data – so much more analytics than we, the public, do when it comes to assessing these micro and, at this stage of a game, macro decisions.
0: Yeah, how could we possibly second-guess them given that they can't seem to have a human conversation with each, <laughs> with each other? Well, I, think,
1: I think we can second-guess that part, but the, whether it was the right decision or not, there, was, there may or may not have been, though it seems in this case maybe there wasn't, underlying <laughs> data that would have supported it.
3: Yeah, I, I mean, the... For the most part, if you if you look back over the last um, number of postseasons, the the managers who in after the fact are praised for their for their boldness and their their managing style usually had quicker hooks. That what we've seen is that the that the direction has been boldness to having a quicker hook, um, and the managers that get roasted usually it's because they left a pitcher in uh, a little too long and. I, I don't know. I mean, we'll never know. I, the, I think that's the, the great thing about the postseason is that everybody is pitching in uh, either unfamiliar roles or um, at an unfamiliar level of kind of emotion and fatigue and physical exertion. And
1: oh, the, the situation are is different. And the and, routines, yeah, yeah, are everything's,
3: different. everything is different in the postseason. And so you really have almost absolutely no way of knowing uh, which pitcher is the better option right then. And you both have to defer to the manager uh, who knows his players a lot better than we do, uh, while also um, acknowledging that the manager himself doesn't, you know, can't know, can't really know.
0: Well, Clayton Kershaw got left in in Game 5 and gave up some additional home runs. Um, and Game 1, yeah. Well, in
3: Game 1 and gave up some additional base runners. All
0: right, let's finish with David Price, who ended uh, the playoffs with a 3 0 record, a 266 ERA, and a whip of 0.97 because the man is clutch. We've known it this whole time. Um, we've talked about it on this podcast. Mental skill. One of the great clutch pitchers of our age. So, generally, when a guy gets danged rightly or wrongly for his failures in the clutch and his failures in the playoffs and the f- idea that he doesn't have championship medal, I'm always really happy when he succeeds um, and because those labels even when it's like fair based on track record it's just like not it's it's like more like kind of galactically unfair just given what a crapshoot the playoffs are and so I was happy to see Price pitch really well in game five um, and uh, went it for the Red Sox and then after the game he says um, I can't tell you how good it feels Speaking of the media, you guys have had it uh, for a long time. The the Trump card about how I haven't played well in the postseason, you've played that card extremely well, but you don't have it anymore. None of you do. And that feels really good. He was described as being combative um, in uh, his postgame press conference. Seems like a little dicky to me, but um, maybe we should just allow for the fact that he has been criticized a huge amount in his career. I don't know. I, I just feel... He had like one
1: of the two, top two worst ERAs in the history of postseason baseball.
0: I just feel like not... I guess I just feel a little less warm and fuzzy towards David Price <laughs> than I thought I would. I wonder what, what you think, Sam. I think that a lot of what
3: players say, the, you know, the characters that they embrace are, uh, are kind of adopted in order to motivate themselves to continue to be good at baseball uh, and that it's probably best not to take it too personally. I don't know why David Price still feels a chip on his shoulder, but I think there's a, a decent chance that he feels a chip on his shoulder because that chip on his shoulder has helped him to um, you know, to motivate himself and to feel a, a drive in his career and his life uh, that you might not otherwise feel if you um, are dealing with the uh, sort of everyday wan anxiety of, of, of the rest of our lives.
1: Sam Miller writes about baseball for ESPN. He is the co-author with Ben Lindbergh of The Only Rule Is It Has to Work, which we seem to promote every week on this show. Thanks, Sam.
2: You're welcome.
0: Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Before we get to LeBron and the Lakers, I wanted to let you know that in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, Stefan and I are going to talk about the man who just became the all-time leading scorer, an NFL history, former Patriots and now Colts kicker Adam Vinatieri, and his bizarre path from South Dakota to the pros. To hear that conversation, join Slate Plus. It's just $35 for the first year. Sign up at slate.com slash hangup plus. It has been, shall we say, an eventful start of the season for the 2-4 and four Los Angeles Lakers, which thus far has included a brawl with the Houston Rockets, a game against the San Antonio Spurs in which they scored 142 points and lost, and a win against the Denver Nuggets in which they were led to victory by the three-point shooting and playmaking of Lance Stevenson. While it's going to take a little bit more time to know what we have with this team, we don't need any more data points to understand that LeBron James is still good. In the Lakers' first six games, he's put up an average of 27 points, nine rebounds, and eight assists per game. Joining us now from Minnesota, where the Lakers are playing the Timberwolves on Monday night, is ESPN's Dave McMinneman. Welcome back to the podcast, Dave.
4: I'm glad to be back with you guys.
0: So the most eventful thing so far in the season is the fight against the Rockets that led to Brandon Ingram and Ray John Rondo getting suspended, there was like a spitting incident. Is this like uh, a microcosm of the season so far? Are the Lakers in disarray or is it just kind of like early season, normal NBA?
1: Or do the Lakers just have the the fighting spirit of a llama?
4: (laughs) (laughs) I certainly wouldn't use the term disarray for this squad. Uh, It was unique. It was something that you just don't see in the league. There hadn't been a fight since 2006 between the Nuggets and the Knicks at Madison Square Garden. I didn't realize that. Carmelo got 15 games. I mean, a legitimate fight where there's a...
1: Like punches know, thrown. The
4: yeah. Uh, there's all sorts of shoving. And a Donnybrook. Things. Yeah, there a you melee. go. Melee. They came to loggerheads. And um, it was... Uh, so in that sense, I mean, this has been a, a very unique start to the year. Uh, because having to recover from... The suspensions that came from that, uh, when Luke Walton and the Lakers already had so much on their plate to begin with, with so many different faces than they had last year,
1: and that of course was the sort of interesting and sort of head scratching part of the construction of this team around LeBron James. I mean, it really is bipolar. I mean, there are clearly the the younger players, Lonzo Ball, etc., and the older heads that everybody sort of looked at him and, and said, like, why on earth are you signing
0: these guys? It, you it, mean it, the Lakers' number three scorer, JaVale McGee, who's putting up preposterous numbers in short minutes? It was only a matter of time before JaVale McGee came into his own in the league.
1: Um, but the the mystery of the roster construction, to me, seems to be the the sort of overhanging question on this team. I mean, how do you make sense of it, and how do you see these pieces coming together?
4: Well, first, you have to recognize the larger context is that they were – trying to be a competitive team this year while have as much flexibility for the summer 2019 as possible to keep that max or perhaps two max slots open so that they can go through the traditional super team construction then at the same time uh, you know you took basically four swings uh, on these one year veterans mm-hmm. and so far it appears that they've connected on three of them uh, you know Javel McGee is paid the veteran minimum. and He's shooting over 60% from the field, getting a couple blocks per game, um, being able to play this up-tempo style of game that Luke Walton's trying to get them to all adopt. And, you know, Rajon Rondo, obviously the suspension notwithstanding, has been uh, a guy who everyone has credited as being one of the two vocal leaders alongside LeBron James. So to give this team, a complexion of not just unilateral uh, direction that LeBron presents, but there is a running mate uh, a peer at his level.
0: So this season is about adjustments, I think, for um, the team and for fans. Like, it's still weird to see LeBron in that jersey. I'm interested in what you said about Rondo kind of taking on a leadership role because it's obviously a big adjustment for um, the guys on that team to have LeBron come in there. So could you um, kind of give us a look into that locker room? And what's the dynamic in LA versus how it was in Cleveland as far as LeBron kind of running the show and how the other players on the team seem to be responding to that?
4: It's been a positive progression um, for uh, you know LeBron in terms of recognizing the added scrutiny that he's brought upon himself based on his actions. So I look back to the first practice that the Cavs had in 2014-2015. LeBron, before David Blatt even has a chance to put them through their paces or uh, introduce himself really and go through what they want to accomplish their first day of practice, LeBron has a closed-door meeting in the locker room goes around the locker room and points to every player and tells them what he envisions their, their role to be on that team. And, you know, then David Black has address them. Well, that didn't happen uh, with this Lakers team. Uh, LeBron let Luke Walton do all the talking as a head coach, and, and it was Luke Walton's vision uh, being presented uh, before, you know, LeBron could cloud the players' heads with a competing standpoint.
1: The pressure on LeBron coming back from Miami to Cleveland was that he would drag whatever bag of players he was given (laughs) across the finish line. And in L.A., I think there is a perception that this is retirement play for LeBron. This is where he wants to be. And that, as you mentioned earlier, there's a recognition that there's no way LeBron, even LeBron James, isn't strong enough to drag this bag across the finish
4: line. LeBron, in the Eastern Conference— has even proven that the last couple of years that he can do that. But once he got there, once he dragged the the groups, uh, so to speak, to the finals, you know, the the Warriors took it to the Cavs, winning eight out of nine games the last two finals. So the logic there that you apply is that even if LeBron does drag this group to the Western Conference – then you're going to meet the Warriors before you get to the finals, and so you're not going to be sniffing a championship. But beyond that, what I've found out of LeBron thus far is this is not – I mean, of course, there's a retirement play because this is the, you know, I guess the fourth chapter to the four-chapter career that you view his his career – you view his playing career in. But there's not a resignation that, you know, well, this is KD's league now or this is Steph Curry's league now, et cetera, et cetera. Like, he's still – extremely dominant on a night-to-night basis, and he's still putting his body uh, through the you know extreme uh, preparation process that he will do over an 82-game season to make sure he can continue.
0: I wanted to also ask you about the media scene out in L.A. Um, when you were in Cleveland, you talked on this podcast and in other venues about um, you, know, you were one of a handful of, of folks who covered him kind of locally, there are also a bunch of national um, people obviously passing through all the time. Um, wondering what the atmosphere is like in Los Angeles with the local media and with the national media and sort of how LeBron is dealing with that compared with the relationships that he developed in Cleveland over the years.
4: I'm, I'm slow to really characterize it in terms of this is how it's going to be. Um, what it's been has been wild and, and a little unsustainable. Um, <laughs> you know, the, the last home game, or I guess the first home game. You know, obviously, that was such sp- special circumstances with the fight to begin with, but um, LeBron James' his post-game scrum was out in the hallway at Staples Center, and there had to have been... I mean, there was 250 people credentialed for the game. 210 of them had to be surrounding him. Um, there were photographers standing up on... Ladders, like literal ladders that you would go to like clean out your gutters <laughs> um, to try to get an angle to, to get uh, you know, their viewfinder on him and press record. There's been a home game since, and, uh, or a couple home games since, I guess I should say, and uh, it was not as ridiculous. Uh, but I, mo- I imagine there'll be some ridiculous moments.
1: The Cavaliers, unsurprisingly, are uh, not having a good time so far this season. And teams do collapse when LeBron James leaves them, which is understandable. But the Cavs, boy, they've lost every game. Kevin Love appears to be hurt. Um, and they just fired Teron Liu, the head coach, who had a very close relationship with uh, with LeBron James. There was a lot of tweeted love toward Liu. Over the weekend, after he was fired, this team is a, a dumpster fire. Um, it's to be expected, of course, but you know, how does a franchise post LeBron even try to
4: recover? I felt like they tried to change their complexion on the fly last season by the midseason trades, and they brought in the young talent, so, and they got. Obviously, even going back to the summer before LeBron started his last season in Cleveland, they got the draft pick for Kyrie Irving. Dang and so they felt like they were making steps to not be in the same situation that they were in 2010, where it was completely catching them off guard. That said, their initial steps, even though I guess they, they prepared to take them, haven't looked uh, good at all. Um, I have a hard time making sense of firing Toronto for excuse me six games into the year when you know the, the, your top guy Kevin Love is out and, and so you know now they're basically giving up on this year. I mean uh, they haven't even figured out if Larry Drew will be their interim coach or will be have a chance at being the coach in the future. Or, um, the rest of the staff all on final years of their deal and. I could see that locker room turning pretty quickly, and I, I, I personally don't believe that Tron would allow that to happen had he been there to you know, kind of take reins of the ship all, all year long.
0: Well, David Blatt is available, um, so I'm, I'm sure he could figure things out. Um, I mean, I think the issue here is that after LeBron left, as you said, they kind of prepared for it a little bit, but clearly this organization wasn't on the same page about how to proceed, like their moves didn't really make sense. If you look at them collectively, you know, signing Kevin Love to the big money extension, but also, um, you know, drafting Colin Sexton and saying, all right, you're going to run the team when rookie point guards are generally always bad, even when they turn out to be good later in their careers, except, oh, we're also going to hold on to Kyle Korver and J.R. Smith and we'll play them for two games and we won't play them and then we will play them again. And then Teron Liu says, I don't like this and then we're going to fire him. Like, you need to have this conversation like for a year before LeBron leaves and failing that, you need to have it very clearly and have everyone be pointing in the same direction afterwards. And that's where, you know, I understand wanting to fire Teron Liu if he's not going to do what the general manager and the owner want him to do, that makes sense. But you need to figure that out a few months ago, if not a year ago. And if you don't, that means, like, kind of by definition that you're dysfunctional.
4: Yeah, I mean, and and 0-6, yeah, that that feels bad. And I understand how a team could feel like everything has changed and the sky is falling down on them, and these off-season conversations um, become moot. You know, everybody has a plan until you get punched in the face. But at the same time, you know, they're – is the question mark of, you know, what is their motivation? What does what management ownership in Cleveland ultimately want to accomplish with this year? You know, they made that big deal about re-signing Kevin Love and actually having him sign the contract in Quicken Loans Arena with all the arena workers who were working on the um, reconstruction of it behind him for this great photo op, and it was, you know, we have a, multi-time all-star champion who wants to be in Cleveland and be a part of the post-LeBron era. And now you wonder, uh, were they just doing that to try to get people to come and embrace the new arena and
1: and 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 feel excited about this
4: team in the offseason? Their actual plan is to, you know, come January, trade Kevin Love away, um, and potentially, you know, trade... Uh, Kyle Corvert to a you know a team like the Lakers who need a shooter and and you know be able to retain the pick that they traded away to Atlanta that they would potentially lose if they won a certain amount of games this year, et cetera, et cetera. Like you know what is the actual intention with this
0: group? I had a plan for the segment. I did not get punched in the face, and so it did go according to plan. Dave McMenamin, thank you for joining us, and we will be watching. Uh, the Lakers in Minnesota and beyond Take Probably care. won't be watching the Cavs though so. <laughs> Thanks guys On Sunday night in Minnesota, the Saints beat the Vikings 30-20. to And a week after going for it on fourth down four times on their opening drive, New Orleans didn't have to do anything aggressive at all to beat the Vikings. This time it was Minnesota who went for it on fourth down at the goal line in the first quarter, scoring a touchdown. And it was Minnesota who went for it on fourth down from their own 45-yard line early in the third quarter, throwing an incomplete pass that helped doom them to defeat. After the game, Vikings coach Mike Zimmer, who I would categorize as one of our crustier NFL coaches, they're just kind of like a crust around him, is the best that I can say it. Um, He said, I told the team I was going to be aggressive. Every fourth down that was close, we were going to go for it. Joining us now to explain why the likes of the crusty Mike Zimmer suddenly have fourth down fever, which may or may not cause crustiness. It's Kevin Clark of The Ringer. Hello, Kevin.
2: Hey Josh, how are you doing?
0: I'm doing well. Um, I think we can stipulate that coaches are being more aggressive now. I could read off yeah. some like fancy statistics for you about maybe we can just link to them on our show page, but let's just um say that it is established by people who keep track of these things that coaches are more aggressive on fourth down this year than they were the previous year. Yeah. And it's way more aggressive than they were in the nineties and the two thousands. What is the official Kevin Clark? Explanation for the newfound aggression of NFL coaches on fourth down.
2: So there's there's a million reasons and they all come together. All, all right, works. long show. I'm <laughs> settling yeah, so, in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I mean the, the short version is that coaches, the vast majority of them do not do anything until they see something works on a big scale. So Doug Peterson, his whole shtick is aggressiveness, fourth down two-point conversions, and now every other coach like Mike Zimmer says, okay, well, that worked on a big scale. We can do this. I think Ron Rivera was a low-grade version of that three years ago when he did the Riverboat Ron thing. I think beyond that, it's the plays. I mean, offensive coordinators have designed a lot better plays than they had five, ten years ago to where teams feel more confident in short-yarded situations. It's really easy to get two yards now, especially compared to a decade ago. And I also think the the media gives them cover. I mean, the media now – has shifted to where it is more analytic-driven. Uh, younger people, they're not. I think the biggest fear from someone like a Pat Shermer who went for two down eight last week, for instance, I think the biggest fear was the the sort of tabloidy, what is this coach thinking kind of thing? And I just don't think that exists anymore in post-game press conferences or the columns on Monday. It's not the, what a boneheaded move by this guy thing that it was 15, 20 years ago.
1: Right, and that's a function of the media becoming much smarter about analytics. Yeah. And it's a function also of just this, the it's sort of philosophy creep into the public's eye. The more people quote people who have actually created charts, the more... That regular fans understand that, oh, there's a chart for deciding when to go for two and, oh, there's a Everyone chart to for a chart. deciding oh, there's when a chart? to go for okay. it on fourth down. <laughs> but it does just make it palatable. It makes it commonplace. It's not out of the ordinary and, therefore, it's not news in a classically right. defined sense the way it once was.
2: Absolutely. And, and I also think you have the owners now, you know, it's not the sort of captains of industry. It was 20 years ago who own these teams. I think it's a lot more of these hedge fund guys, the David Tepper types who are, uh, for lack of a better phrase, not afraid of math.
0: Uh, that's interesting. I hadn't thought of it that way. But I think for me, like, um, Stefan, what, what do you think uh, coaches job is in the NFL to not get fired? Exactly. It's not to win games. <laughs> It is to not get fired. And the reason that you don't go for two or um, that you don't go for it on fourth down is that it allows you to not get fired.
1: Right. We had this conversation about Bill Belichick. (laughs) He was insulated from getting fired when he went for two against the Colts in the playoffs a few years ago.
0: And now that going for it on fourth down or going for two allows you to not get fired, then you go for it on fourth down. And go for two. And also and, the
1: math backs you up.
0: And the math backs you up. But um, I think if the math didn't back you up and doing it uh, allowed you to not get fired, you would still do it because it would allow you to not get fired. The math is like a nice supporting detail here um, that allows uh, those of us who consider us uh, ourselves smart to uh, back the coaches up. But, um, Kevin, the decision that's probably gotten the most criticism of any coaching move this year was Jason Garrett's decision to punt on a fourth and one in overtime in the opponent's territory. And I think even in like an earlier era, that decision still would have got, he still would have gotten pilloried for it because they lost in overtime and it's Dallas and um, they're, they're just like, those things never change. But I think all forces in the world were coalescing around Jason Garrett doing a dumb thing in a way that maybe they wouldn't have previously.
2: So there's a couple of things. Number one is that compounds an earlier problem, which is that they took a running back fourth overall two years ago. And so you can't take a running back fourth overall and waste draft capital like that and then not be the fourth and one guy. Like that's your job if if you're going to do the running game thing. Um, I think that, yeah, it just and shows they They've had you,
0: ridiculous success with Elliott yeah. and Prescott on 4th yeah. and 1s, like 18 yeah. of I, 19 or something.
2: You can't build your team around success in short-yarded situations and then punt on 4th down. I mean, that, that, that is the problem. So they were making the exact wrong decision in almost every area of, of the sport. So, yeah, it shows you because when you talk to people in the analytics community, they talk about that Belichick-Colts 4th down, the, the Kevin Falk incompletion. Or that he was stopped short of the sticks. They talk about that all the time because it was such a boon for them because it made it was sort of the shift. He got criticized so swiftly, and then the backlash to the backlash sort of set up the 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 uh, journey now to where a guy like Jason Garrett gets criticized for punting. And so I think that that it just shows you how far we've come. That that was the you know I think even the Pat Shermer going for it for uh, going for two down eight last week. That was criticized by the Monday Night Football booth, but then almost immediately, uh, the rest of America was like, okay, we understand the math is on the side. And so someone like Jason Garrett, who's probably going to get made fun of no matter what he does, him sort of playing into the conservative notion that, that really doesn't exist much in the league, that's that's very, very funny to NFL fans.
1: I want to, I, I, I'm glad you brought up the Monday Night Football booth, because I think the 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 biggest laggers here are announcers. That's a great point. Yeah. I was watching the Carolina Baltimore game on Sunday. Don't ask why. Like Cam Newton's my fantasy quarterback, um, <laughs> and Carolina was up thirty three to fourteen with eight minutes to go in the game, and the announcers Greg Gumbel, Trent Green, and Bruce Arians were surprised that Carolina threw a pass on first down and on second down. You know, why aren't they going to ground and pound and chew up the clock? Which said to me that they're still completely misreading NFL offenses and the modern game. It was a three-score game. They were kicking Baltimore's defense's ass up and down the field. And it made total sense for them to continue doing what they were doing to try to make it 40 to 14.
2: Right. Yeah, I, That that's it, it's so strange to me that there, there's just a high variance in boots. You know, yesterday I was watching the Chiefs game and I was watching it very closely because I knew I was going to come on here and the Chiefs were going to go for it on fourth and one from the one-yard line. And Rich Gannon was asked about it and he wasn't endorsing going forward on fourth down, but he was kind of, he, I think he sort of understood which way the wind was blowing as far as he would get criticized for saying they shouldn't go for it. So he was like, yeah, whatever, you know, I'll go for it. And so I think that n- no one is going to be the 50-year-old ex-quarterback who is just saying go for and forth fourth down all the time? Never punt. You know, turn to the Kevin Kelly guy from Pulaski Academy, who hasn't punched <laughs> in years. No one's going to be saying that. But I think that it, it, we need to hand some of these color guys some football outsiders' notebooks and uh and and teach them a little bit about where the game is headed.
0: Well, Doug Peterson apparently has two i I yeah. love the idea that he has two people in his ear like telling him what the math is and are those guys ever arguing like i wanna I want like a feed of the two transcript. guys in Doug Peterson's ear you think all twenty two. You yeah. would think that <laughs> you would think that maybe like uh, Greg Gumbel could have like one guy in his ear who like took an well, AP ca- calculus class. Yeah, I, I just think that's a function of
2: what play by play and color guys do. When they sit down on Friday, they spend so much of their time talking to players and coaches about you know a third down package or, or that kind of stuff, the X's and O's of the game. And I just don't think that they keep up on on the bigger trends of the game. But when you listen to it, that becomes apparent. I think that there's there has not been a shift in broadcast booths the way there has been in, in in the media. You know, I I think that I probably when I sit down with the coach, I probably spend 20 minutes with the average coach. I probably spend 15 of those on sort of macro trends of the game. I think it's a lot more micro when those media members sit down with, with the coach. And so, yeah, fourth down, two-point conversion, run-pass balance, uh, running on first down is a big thing now uh, as far as getting it out of the game. And so I think those things are, are often overlooked when it's Mike Zimmer and Trent Green you know, talking shop.
1: Kevin, you wrote a piece uh, for The Ringer about some of the that, those macro trends in football mm-hmm. this season about how it is the, the game has become way more volatile, um, high-scoring, low average margin of victory, which is yeah. great for excitement and for the sport weekly scoring average at an all time high. F- the NFL is becoming like climate change, right? There are a lot more weird <laughs> extremes that we need to be prepared for. <laughs> and yet we're still shocked when they happen. Um, yeah. This is the way professional football is now. And it's great yeah. for the NFL Um because in the face of everything else, all of the off-field stuff and all of the incompetence at the at the commissioner level um, and all the conversation about injuries and concussions and CTE, the game itself is way more palatable this season, yeah. and this has been a trend.
2: You know, one of the things – I jumped on the NFL beat in 2012, and I remember talking to Mike Shanahan, and he, was, he kept talking about iPads and technology and all of the new little things that were coming into the game around that point. And he said something that I, I think about all the time. He basically said that the game is changing now year to year more than it did in the entire decades before that. And when you start to think about it, you start to see these years, and it's, okay, well, Patrick Mahomes is just running the Texas Tech-Oklahoma type of spread offense. Baker Mayfield's doing the same thing. Two years ago, you'd be laughed out of the, out of the league if you tried to do that stuff. Um, You know, next year, maybe it's Sean Payton put three quarterbacks on the field last night. Maybe that's maybe two two guys or three guys who can throw the ball in the backfield is is the way to go in 2021. And so with that. It's not like NFL coaches are doing wholesale changes of their staff every year. So you maybe have 25 or 26 coaches who have no idea what they're doing in a given year as, when it comes to the trends. And so it becomes an awkward and disjointed league. Teams get good almost by, by virtue of luck in, in, in some situations because they're not equipped to these changes. I mean, I, I don't, I don't want to make this like a tech analogy but, you know, the big thing is in in Silicon Valley is being swift and being able to pivot and all this stuff. And I really do feel like with the NFL now, it's it's getting to a point where the league changes so quickly that you really are going to need to pivot in, in huge, huge ways.
0: OK, two things that I want to mention before we go. The first is back to the decision by Pat Shermer and then also Doug Peterson to go for two went down by eight points. And I would like put that in a slightly different category than what we've talked about thus far. Um, I wrote about that in 2013, about how this exact situation the like down by eight, you should go for two, was like known by statisticians um, for like a half century, essentially, and no coach did it ever because it's just like, all right, you're down by eight, you kick an extra point, you're down seven, and then you score again and you tie and you go to overtime. And that just like makes no sense um, if you like run the numbers, because if you make the two, then you'll like w- actually win the game in regulation rather than having a 50 50 chance in overtime. Anyway, I'll link to the old article. It's like there's math, but it, it makes a lot of sense. But this is a case where, as you, as you said, Kevin, Shermer was criticized for it. We still haven't like actually caught up. In this case, like you might actually still get fired for doing that in a playoff game. And yet um, this is a case where I think it sort of like complicates or challenges our view that this is all like following the herd. There are guys like Peterson and like Shermer who are willing at this stage to be like, look, the math works. People might not understand it, but I'm still going to do it. And like that, I think, represents a real sea change here. The second thing I wanted wanted to say is that like. Given everything that you just said about how it's an offensive league, about how there's so much um, you know power in like retaining possession of the ball and not giving it back, even with all this aggression, there's still just like so much further, I feel like, that coaches could go to get to like the real um, kind of break even point in this like at the at the end of the first half of the Viking Saints game, this being the team that showed that maybe you can score a touchdown in the last seconds of a game against the New Orleans Saints in Minnesota in a key moment, they had two timeouts and 30 seconds left and just like kneeled on the ball. It was totally bizarre. And this from Mike Zimmer, a guy who's like, I'm going to be aggressive in every situation. And then also in the Rams-Packers game at the end of the game, even though it worked out for the Rams... Sean McVay was like kind of bizarrely playing for a field goal and being like, all right, all right, Aaron Rodgers, like, we'll give you the ball with up two points. And so I'm curious for your thoughts on those two things, Kevin. Like, it seems like there are a handful of coaches who are like, we're going to just buck all of the trends here. And then on the other hand, it just seems like coaches could be way more aggressive than they are now.
2: So I'll address the second part first. So the McVay thing was strange to me. Here's a guy who basically has engineered a playbook to where a touchdown can basically be conjured up on demand. And he didn't want to go for it. He wanted to just play it safe. And, and he got lucky with the Ty Montgomery fumble right after that. But I kind of feel like it's, it's a bit of a – we talked about the sport changing so much. I feel like coaches sometimes don't believe in what they're seeing. As far as – McVeigh has to know at this point that there's a number of plays that can just get him a touchdown. Yet it seems so counterintuitive and so against history of football to say, okay, we're going to do this. That even someone like Sean McVeigh, who has the, probably the best playbook in football, maybe Andy Reid is is up there as well. He's, he's going to be conservative as well. So I just think that there's we haven't really. It's the same thing with you know trying a three late if you're down by one, if you're even if it's a efficient shot, if you're an NBA player, if, even if you're Steph Curry. Maybe you, you get a little scared about that because it just seems like it shouldn't be the play. Now, as far as the um the the Peterson thing and how far we have to go, I mean, I just think that that's that's just the gulf. That's I think that you're gonna see a bigger gulf between the teams that get it than don't. Teams yeah. like Doug Peterson, teams like uh, you know, coaches like Doug Peterson, coaches like Bill Belichick, and then the the teams that just absolutely have no clue and it don't I mean the San Diego Chargers don't have an analytics department, guys. Like that's the, the Eagles are, are they're not even in, in San Diego, Kevin. Oh, yeah, yeah I always say that. But um, that's on that. I feel like that's on them. That's not on me. They shouldn't be here. They shouldn't be in L.A. Um, but, you know, the, the Eagles are operating in 2050 here and the San Diego, or the, the Los Angeles Chargers are operating in 1995. So that's only going to grow unless everybody modernizes.
1: If they're operating in 1995, then they are the San Diego Chargers. Exactly. Let's just be clear with that. I'd like to make one (laughs) additional point um, that all of this makes sense for the long-term preservation of the NFL. If you're going to eliminate the worst kind of hits and try to protect players – as much as you can, which is obviously almost impossible to do. But if you're going to try to protect defenseless receivers you're try to eliminate egregious hits to players that are already on the ground or going to the ground, you're going to try to protect quarterbacks. The consequence is going to be more offense and more randomness. And this is not a bad thing at all, both for protecting players' health to some degree and for elevating interest and in making the game entertaining, as entertaining as possible.
2: Yeah. You know, the, the, so really it's interesting to me because there's been studies done on what kind of offensive plays cause concussions um, and cause head injuries. And I think the vast, the vast majority of plays are still special teams plays, you know, kickoffs are mm-hmm. probably going to be out of the sport within five years because of just the high incidence of, of concussions um, on those plays. But what I think is interesting is there've been a lot of studies or at least some studies that I've read that say that the middle of the field is where, especially on passing routes, is where a lot of these concussions happen. Just guys crossing the middle of the field and getting yep. hit. The West Coast offense has caused more concussions in vertical offenses, if you if you believe some of these studies. and I tend to, obviously, um, but I just don't think there's... there's in, in a 16-game season, there's just not so much data that it's irrefutable. But I do think that it would seem that passing would preserve player health, but I also think that just players going over the middle of the field and getting clobbered um, negates that a little tiny bit, so it's not the it's not the magic bu- or the silver bullet that the NFL wanted as far as you know solving the concussion crisis. But it does help, even if there's still a little bit of problems with the modern game as far as head injuries.
1: Well, right, but those things are addressable. You can you right. can again legislate the way players make contact in the in the defensive backfield. Exactly, and and that's going to continue
2: to happen. I think. I, I totally agree with you.
0: Kevin Clark went for it uh, on fourth down eight times during that segment, converted six of them. Pretty good <laughs> percentage. Kevin, thank you very much.
2: Thank you so much, guys.
0: We became brothers that day when he did that to us.
1: We made a change
2: fighting for what we deserve.
3: Search for amazing sports stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts.
0: Now it is time for After Balls, and we're going to talk about Adam Vinatieri in our bonus segment. He just became the all time uh, leading scorer in NFL history. Jeff Eisenberg of Yahoo Sports had a good piece about um, how Vinatieri came to be uh, in the NFL. We'll also get more into that in our bonus segment. But the kind of most amazing and hilarious part of uh, this story was that Vinatieri was so um, lightly regarded or was performing so poorly as a college kicker that he was replaced temporarily by a defensive lineman. His name was Jim Remy, And he was described by the coach of uh, South Dakota State as a square-toed, straight-on kicker. Jim Remy uh, did not succeed as the kicker for South Dakota State, opening the door for Adam Vinatieri to reclaim his job. Um, But Jim Remy is the kind of guy that we need more of in uh, in football, the square-toed, straight-on defensive lineman kicker. You can still order square-toed kicking shoes online. Uh, and that's a comfort to me mm-hmm. and, uh, in these dark times. Stefan, what is your Jim Remy?
1: Over the weekend I saw a new documentary. It's called Bisbee 17. It's about the deportation of miners and union activists in the company-run copper town of Bisbee, Arizona on July 12, 1917. It's not a straight retelling with talking heads and sepia photographs. Instead, the director Robert Green drafts local residents to stage a reenactment of the events of that day for the 100th anniversary. And builds a story not just of a town grappling with history, but the very current issues of borders and migrants and deportation. The New York Times called Bisbee 17 clear-sighted and gratifyingly complicated. It is those things. I highly recommend it. What does this have to do with sports, you ask? Well, in the pre-dawn hours of that day in 1917, locals deputized by the sheriff sealed off the town, rounded up around 2,000 of the miners, organizers, and supporters at gunpoint. They were all given one chance to denounce the international workers of the world, the Wobblies, and go back to work. In the end, about 1,200 of them refused. Many of them had Mexican and Slavic surnames. They were loaded into 23 cattle cars and dropped off Two hundred miles away in a town in New Mexico. Before the deportation, though, the strikers were herded into the stands at the local stadium, Warren Ballpark. The stadium was built by one of the local mining companies, the Calumet and Arizona Mining Company of Michigan, just eight years earlier in 1909. And it was named for George Warren, a prospector who discovered one of the area's great copper loads. But Warren was also a drunk who lost his one ninth claim to the Copper Queen mine in a bet that he could outrun a horse in a 100-yard race, he died penniless in the early 1890s. The ballpark named for him is a couple miles from Bisbee, and it was part of an attempt to build a suburban town to lure American miners who could own their own homes and in turn would be loyal to the company. It's still in use today. Warren calls itself the oldest continuously used multi-sports stadium in America. It was home to the Class D minor league baseball Bisbee Bees. From 1928 to 1941, Hannes Wagner managed against Connie Mack in an exhibition game there in 1940. The Class C Bisbee Douglas Copper Kings played there in the 1940s and 50s. And for a few weeks in 2003, until the startup Independent League folded, Warren Ballpark hosted a team of the same name that in its short life gave away popsicles one night to honor the freezing of Ted Williams at a cryogenics facility in Scottsdale. Today, Warren Ballpark hosts high school baseball and football and other events. On Friday, the Bisbee High School Pumas finish their season with a 41-32 win over the Tombstone Yellow Jackets. But the specter of 1917 hovers over Warren Ballpark. The stadium makes several appearances in Bisbee 17, the documentary, including, of course, as the site of the roundup in the reenactment and in the film's gorgeous final scene where a young Mexican-American man who plays a striking Mexican minor in the play within the film walks through the outfield as a youth baseball team warms up. This all got me wondering, maybe a little weirdly, about sports facilities with dark moments in their past. Stadiums are logical places for awful things because they hold a lot of people and are easy to close off. During World War II, for instance, Kamal Staffa Stadium in Tirana, Albania, which I talked about on the show a few years ago, was used by occupying German forces to store vehicles and equipment. In America, the most despicable use of a stadium has to be Santa Anita Racetrack in California, where for six months in 1942, about 19,000 Japanese Americans were housed in barracks and converted horse stalls on their way to internment camps. Slate's Henry Grabar talked about that on the podcast this past summer. Other stadiums have been the site of unspeakable atrocities. For two months in 1973, Estadio Nacional in Santiago, Chile, was used as a prison camp after a military coup that overthrew the country's elected president. As many as 20,000 people were imprisoned there and several dozen were murdered. In 2011, during the civil war in Syria, human rights organizations reported that the government was using stadiums in at least three cities as makeshift prisons. In Raqqa, Syria, meanwhile, occupying ISIS forces from 2013 to 2017, used the Black Stadium, as it's known for its dark concrete, as a prison. Thousands of people were locked up, tortured and killed, some of them beheaded in the stadium's locker room, gym and showers. In April, though, the Black Stadium was reclaimed for its intended purpose. Two local soccer teams, Al-Rashid and al Saad, played a match in front of a few dozen fans. We've made the stadium a place for sports again, an official with the Raqqa Civil Council said. I don't think I'll ever make it to the Black Stadium, but I'd love to go to Warren Ballpark. Maybe next April, when Warren hosts the 10th Copper City Classic Vintage Baseball Tournament, Vintage Baseball, where dudes grow elaborate mustaches, wear flannel, and play by 19th century rules. The tournament will commemorate the 1919 Chicago Black Sox, because there's a connection. After they were kicked out of baseball for allegedly throwing the World Series, several players, including Hal Chase, Buck Weaver, and Chick Gandel, played in two outlaw leagues, the Frontier and Copper Leagues, in Arizona. Arizona, a website on the history of Warren ballpark notes that Bisbee had a team in the copper league, but did not all caps did not hire any of the band black Sox. Anyway, go see the movie Bisbee 17. It's terrific. Josh, what's your Jim Remy?
0: Uh, Stefan, there's going to be more kicker content on this show and it's going to come from me, baby. The guy that's a twist (laughs) plot twist. Uh, the guy Adam Vinatieri passed as the league's all-time leading scorer was Hall of Famer Morton Anderson, longtime kicker for the New Orleans Saints and, unfortunately, the Atlanta Falcons. Anderson, like Vinatieri, had an improbable path to the NFL, having grown up in Denmark. Uh, he took the league by storm. He took New Orleans by storm, to be more specific. In 1987... Sports Illustrated ran a feature on him saying women regularly call the Saints' offices to get his unlisted number. It is not uncommon for Anderson to hear female squeals while dining in the French Quarter. The truth is he loves the limelight and capitalizes on it by dressing up his Scandinavian good looks with a chic European wardrobe. (laughs) Uh, The story goes on to say that in 1983, Anderson posed for a beefcake poster in a sheer belly button bearing jersey. In tight short shorts, more than 16,000 were sold in a few months. Now, I have tried over the last 24 hours I to conjure the words to describe this outfit. I'm going to show it to Stefan. Oh, you found the calendar? It is. I'm, I haven't turned around my computer yet, so Stefan hasn't seen it. Uh, not a calendar, a poster. It is truly one of the more r- remarkable pieces of portraiture I've ever seen in my life, sports or non-sports. Are you ready, Stefan? I'm ready i'm gonna like i'm gonna let you describe it to the listeners because of your expertise in kicking,
1: oh my God <laughs> okay, Morton is standing next to a bank of what looked like high school lockers, not n f l lockers. He's got his right hand up against the lockers coquettishly coquettishly. Right knee is bent, slight angle, torso turned, just a hair. Good form. Good form. Describe the top that he's wearing. He's wearing what? It's a sort of a long sleeve mesh cutoff, black, sheer. Midriff bearing. Midriff bearing, belly button, fully visible. And he's wearing, yes, short, short compression shorts.
0: Uh, I have not yet looked on eBay. As uh, was the you know, the style of the times. It was the style of the time. They're shorter than John Stockton shorts, we must say. All right. Th- that's not the subject of the afterball, though. That's just the appetizer. Uh, so back to the Sports Illustrated story. He followed the poster with a record, Take It to the Top, which he sang with Saints punter Brian Hansen. It sold 5,000 copies. So I love sports novelty songs. As much as Stefan loves kickers. And somehow I had never heard of the existence of this song, much less heard a stippin' of it. I love sports novelty songs too. But YouTube, Stefan, as always, is our friend. So let's hear some of Take It to the Top. Sounds like it could be the backing track for um, Teen Wolf or Karate Kid, like a montage mm-hmm. scene. Like that's kind of the era that we're in. And um, this came out in, I believe, when, when, when did it come out? It came out in, sometime in the fall of 1985. It came out before the Super Bowl shuffle. The Saints immediately, according to contemporaneous news reports, lost four games in a row. I thought you were going to say
1: disavowed themselves of all knowledge of (laughs) the recording.
0: No, no, no. They lost four games in a row after that. Um, I found another news story uh, from April of 1986 after that season was over um, saying that people who went to the Crawfish Festival, and this was reported in the Tesh News in St. Martinville, people who went to the Crawfish Festival would get a personal version of Morton Anderson and Brian Hanson's Take It to the Top. Um, so congratulations to residents of St. Martinville of 1986 for, uh, for getting that. Um, your thoughts, Stefan? I have two questions. One— Are you going to take it to the top or no? Yes or no? Absolutely.
1: Yes. But was the song intended as a football song or was this just the sort of a crossover kicker-punter collaboration, you know, in case the football thing didn't work out? Is it explicitly the Saints are going to take it to the top and win the
0: Super Bowl lyrically? I mean, all I can say to that is that some treat a race like a love embrace and they go for it with a smile on their face because they know it's going to win a place at the top. I mean, if that doesn't answer your question, I don't know what will. Who
1: was the quarterback of the Saints at that point? We're going to make
0: it. We're going to take it to the top. And
1: and were there any stories – Sort of documenting the uh, locker room's response to the release of Take It to the Top.
0: I don't know the answer to that question. That mm-hmm. might be fodder for a future after ball. Uh, the quarterback on that team, uh, the guy who got uh, the most Embrace. snaps was— uh, He was embraced the most. Dave Wilson had uh, 10 starts. You might mm-hmm. you might recall the Dave Wilson era. Bobby Aber got six starts. I'm that year, so it was Bobby like Hebert. it was sort of the transition between the Wilson era and the A. Bear. So what era. you're saying is that, era. What what you're saying is that the song may have sort of inspired the A. Bear era. Bobby A. wanted to take it to the top, and he he did. The Saints had not won a playoff game prior to take it to the top. They immediately, uh, fifteen years later, <laughs> won a playoff game after taking to the top. They had not had a winning season. They had a winning season in '87. Uh, so Morton Anderson, inspiration for the young Josh Levine, for Stefan Fatsis, for Adam Vinatieri. He took it to the top and wore a pretty cool mesh halter top. Not a halter top. Cut off. Mesh top. Mesh top. Cut off. That is our show for today. Our producer is Patrick Fort. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup and you can email us at hangup at slate.com. I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zalmo Beatty, and thanks for listening.